0: Welcome to Stratfor's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, and I'm here today with Greg Pretty, who is our Director of Global Energy in the Middle East. Greg, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Why do Russia and Saudi Arabia differ on their responses to this demand hit to oil from COVID-19?
1: It's it's complicated, and this has really been a long time coming. COVID-19 had put a lot of stress and downward pressure on the market. But the differences between Saudi Arabia and Russia have been building ever since the OPEC plus agreement in December 2016. Um, You know, Russia has always been more reluctant than Saudi Arabia to cut production. When you think about it very simplistically, you would think that, you know, producers always are going to want higher prices. But there's a short term versus long term trade off in terms of market share. So, if you have production that grows as a function of price, like shale in the US being the biggest one, but also we're seeing growth in offshore that, uh, you know, projects in Guyana and Norway in particular, where the final investment decisions were made right after the December 2016 OPEC meeting, um, you know, the price sensitivity of that competing production is a big factor. So Russia has always had a more pessimistic view of long-term prices than the Saudis have they were willing to cooperate with OPEC+, Plus, but they were only willing to cut 300,000 barrels a day. And when the U.S. reimposed sanctions on Iran uh, in 2018, uh, there was a period of six months where there were no individual quotas, and the Russians added 700,000 barrels a day during that period. And then when they cut again in December 2018, said, well, we get a new baseline. So Russia is actually producing more Hydrocarbon liquids, and I'll stay out of the def- defini- definitional issues here. But they're actually producing more hydrocarbon liquids than they were um, before the December 2016 agreement. The Saudis see that as very unfair, and so with coronavirus having hammered demand down in, in a volume that we still don't know exactly how bad it's going to be over the course of the year, the Saudis said, "Let's cut deeply," and the Russians, uh, you know, looking at that market share fear had said, well, we've seen over the last three years how much shale grew. U.S. production is up roughly 5 million barrels a day. We need to let the market solve that problem, and we need to let U.S. production shrink. Um, so you know, people are calling it a price war, but I think, partially, it's just Russia having a realistically pessimistic view of their leverage over the market.
0: That's very insightful, Greg. Does anybody blink here?
1: That's that's still a question. I don't think so. When you think out through, you know, probably the next six months or so, um, Russia is very financially prepared for this. You know, during the period of higher prices, they have restrained their government spending, um, you know, it is such that their budget balancing uh, uh, price for Brent is only in the mid 40s. And they also have built up their sovereign wealth fund, which they were contributing to at any price over about $42 a barrel currently, um, which they had actually been criticized for by some people because they were doing austerity in a time when they could have been spending more. But in hindsight, that looks like a good strategy, given the realistically pessimistic view of oil prices. And I think that's where they really differ from the Saudis is, you know, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman is still, in my view, kind of in denial about where the equilibrium price is. He still thinks that it's probably well above 60. Um, and Putin is thinking, well, he said 60 to 65 a year ago. And I think the Russian view is, uh, is probably a bit lower than that now. Um, but, you know, that, that view of market share and prices has also driven, you know, Saudi spending right now, their budget balances with a Brent price in the probably low 80s. Uh, we don't know precisely because some of their spending isn't public, but um, you know Russia is in a stronger position here. And I want to be clear, this is a huge blow to the Russian economy, and this is going to force Russia to do some things that are going to um, you know, reduce Putin's public support a bit uh, and are not going to be popular. But it's also something that I think Russia sees as an inevitable adjustment to the structural forces in the market. Um, and Russia is wanting to see you know, some of this blow in terms of market share taken by the U.S. and not just make everyone feel better by pumping up prices in the short term. And then Texas production stays flat rather than shrinking.
0: Greg, who are the big winners and losers in the world economy from this?
1: Most countries are probably losing as a result of the hit to equities, which is one dimension of it. The, big, the biggest losers are way beyond uh, what Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to feel, which is financially weaker um, oil exporters that have relatively less diversified economies. So if you think about Venezuela and Iran under sanctions and having to discount further, they take a hit. Iran isn't selling that much uh, anymore anyway, but there's still you know 200,000 barrels a day, 300,000 barrels a day going mostly to China. Um, and that's going to be discounted further. Venezuela really takes a hit from this. They, they're selling their oil at prices in the teens now, um, you know, because they're discounting it and because it's much lower quality. So, you know, those kind of weak reads, but also, you know, countries like Nigeria take a big hit from this um, and a number of, a number of other financially weak exporters. On the winning side are countries like India. Where you know their economy is relatively oil-intensive in terms of the amount of oil used per unit of GDP, um, and it's, you know some countries are going to get a, a stimulative effect from this. There's a question though of how how profound that stimulative effect of lower prices will be, though, when people are self-quarantining and not traveling, and you know it arguably puts money back in your pocket, but fuel demand is down anyway. Um, and for the U.S. finally. It, this is a mixed bag. Um, you know, the, the, you, it will put some money back in people's pockets uh, in terms of fuel prices, but the U.S. is such a big producer right now that there are going to be massive regional impacts when you think about West Texas, North Dakota, Colorado, uh, you know, everywhere that there is price-sensitive drilling, um, because that's going to take a big hit. And maybe even a short, maybe even a sharper hit than it did in 2015 uh, during the price collapse that started in 2014. Um, so there, you know, it's 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 a mixed bag for the U.S. and it probably is going to reduce U.S. production as we head into the end of this year and uh, and next year.
0: Well, thank you very much, Greg. That was most interesting. Thank you, Fred. You can read more about Greg's writings on global energy at Stratfor Worldview please visit stratford.com slash subscribe. Thank you. I'm Fred Berger.